Jesse, aka the Bizzle. The Bizzle. Thank you, the Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. Previously on the Bizzle Cast. So yeah, so it's that early '90s. There's so much going on in my life, right? I'm still loving Star Wars, but now I'm into Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Probably ge- getting geeked out. My parents are buying me all the like technical manuals from Star <laughs> Trek, you know, which somehow trying to explain all this techno babble. I mean, I had a whole book breaking down the Enterprise, like floor by floor, <laughs> piece by piece. Yep. It was amazing. I love that shit. It was an awkward phase for me. I was like totally cool in elementary school and got back to being pretty normal in high school, but middle school, I hated everybody. <laughs> Everyone seemed stupid and interested in the wrong things. And so I just got him out a little nerd hole. Dune has a, a very specific reason and a very specific mechanism by which technology is or is not improving. So Herbert's thinking about that stuff. Star Wars never deals with it. As you point out, Star Trek doesn't really deal with it, except on a small level, which is crazy because in Star Trek, how do they, you know, solve all the mysteries? They science the shit out of it, right? Right. So you'd think the fact that the Enterprise, 1701D Enterprise, the next generation Enterprise, you've got Data, who's probably the smartest being in the galaxy, and you've got Geordi LaForge, the engineer, who's one of the sm- smartest humans in the galaxy, right? and you've got Captain Picard, who's like the best and smartest captain that they have at Starfleet, right. you'd think they'd be making major advances in technology, but all it does is get them through these situations. None of that actually carries over. I kind of think of Star Trek, the original series, as the nascent stage of a utopian world, and then by the time you get to Next Generation, which takes place, I think, about 70 years later, maybe 100 years later, and I kind of think of it as during that time, all of the rawness and the still instability stuff is getting worked out. And so then when you get to the Next Generation, you've achieved that point where you don't have to be overtly stating anything because the universe is just kind of internalized finally that this is how the human race is now. The central message I think of Star Trek is that if you want to create change, you can create it from within. That you don't have to form a violent rebellion to fight the bad guys. You can join up and make the changes from within and thus become a leader worthy of having the world put their trust in you. But I think one of the central things that I really like about Star Trek is it suggests that we actually can have leaders who are worthy of, if not blind loyalty, then at least being given a pretty heavy you know, benefit of the doubt. The reason people keep coming back to Star Trek is that it is such an attractive universe for most people. We talked about in the first, in the first podcast we ever did, we talked about how maybe... If you are inherently fearful of government, you're not going to like a centralized, fairly socialist, you know, vision of the future. I think it's fair uh, to say Donald Trump would not be sitting on the United Federation Council. No, I think Donald Trump would probably <laughs> not like Star Trek. Um, <laughs> and knowing him, he would go to a Star Trek convention and tweet about it and then get something really, really wrong. Like, I loved it when Kirk... <laughs> killed the Borg queen or something like that. I don't know. I mean, is there is there a future for space opera or is it just an escapist fantasy like old school Tolkien fantasy at, at this juncture? It is an escape fantasy, but it's one we're going to have. I don't see a, a fascination with the idea of getting off this planet and just saying goodbye to everything and starting fresh on some other planet. There are always going to be, I think, a lot of people who are fascinated with that idea right up until we actually start doing it. There was some huge jump in 99, 2000, 2001 in CGI effects. 
yep, where definitely. you could do things in 2003 that you just couldn't do in even the late 90s. And so that's not really their fault. And the fact that they screwed up Enterprise so badly just shows what a wasted opportunity. That should have been a dark Battlestar type show, you know, and they, and they totally screwed up that, that opportunity to do that. And now... The continuation. All right, Bizzlecaster. So here we are over two years later with Star Trek Discovery, bringing it back to the Star Trek where we began. I'm here with Maddie G, and we're going to dive right in. Maddie G, welcome back. Great to have you on. Let's jump right into Star Trek Discovery, which we are really enjoying. What is it about the show that initially grabbed you? I liked, one, the 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 caliber of the special effects, the visuals, it's a really good looking show. Um, and I worried that, you know, I don't know how much effort CBS is putting into CBS all access. So I wasn't sure what the budget of this was really going to look like. I was afraid it was going to look cheap, but it looks really good. I mean, it's really visually attractive, uh, looking and I really like that. It takes some of the, more free-flowing, uh, kind of just bright and shiny aspects that you got more from the J.J. Abrams verse Star Trek, the the Kelvin universe, I guess is what we call that timeline. Um, that uh, you know that kind of free-floating design. Um, so it looked great. I immediately started to like the characters, and it felt like Star Trek. And the biggest problem I had with the Kelvin movies, and the reason I'm not particularly eager to see any more of them. And I don't really think there will be any more of them because I think that that timeline's out of gas is that it never quite felt like Star Trek. Star Trek Beyond came the closest, but even it didn't quite it wasn't quite the Star Trek that I knew. And this, while making some clear differences that I liked, still felt at its core like Star Trek. Um, And that was enough. You know, watching a few of the later episodes convinced me to try out the uh the first few and then I was pretty much hooked. And now, you know, I suspended Netflix for a month cause I don't want to pay for more than one of these at a time, but I did that purely so that I can watch, uh, this. Yeah. I mean, I assumed because they were putting it online and there was advanced press saying they were going to be dealing, uh, with, with more intense issues, even though, you know, as we've talked about extensively on older podcasts, you know, Star Trek was, was originally known for this. And when it's at its best, it's dealing with complicated human and moral issues. But it did seem like they were going to go, um, into, you know, darker or maybe deeper territory or whatever. We'll get into the specifics of that. I I will say, man, before we we really dive in, I've been shocked at how adult it is. And, even though I still don't want to pay money, uh, extra money for this, <laughs> I am 100% on board paying, you know, $10 for this month or whatever to watch the entire series commercial free in order to get blood and cursing and adult themes and all of that stuff of which mostly Battlestar somehow still got away with a lot of this stuff on uh, the sci-fi network. I'm still right. not sure how that happened. Um, and I think sci-fi network knew it had one program on its network that was a billion times better than anything else that it had. Mm. And it was not going to tell Ron Moore to edit anything. All right, so Ron Moore is a good transition because Ron Moore wrote for Next Generation and was one of the senior writers on Deep Space Nine. He's known for writing some of the you know darker and quirkier episodes of Deep Space Nine. He loved Star Trek, but he wanted to do something different. Went off mm-hmm. and created ba- the new Battlestar Galactica. 
Now, when I asked you to uh, help me come up with a title uh, for, for this episode, which I won't fully reveal here, um, two influences uh, that you mentioned, uh, which I think is interesting, because you, you did just mention the Kelvin universe, which you said didn't really feel like Star Trek. But one of, one of the influences was J.J. Abrams, and it's undeniable that the, some of the ways they just shoot the ships and the bridge and stuff and the lighting is very J.J.-esque um, here. And then you also pointed to Battlestar. Um, since those are two things that you know I love, uh, and I do agree with you, by the way, the Kelvin universe does feel like an alternate reality, and I think that's part of why they did it, other than to just to reboot the story. They were like, this is never really going to fit in with everything else going on uh, in Star Trek or whatever. Um, right. However, I still love the reboot. I still think Into Darkness could have been good with a, with a better, much better script. And uh, beyond, well, I don't know. I'm not really sure what happened with Star Trek Beyond. But, I, but the initial Star Trek reboot was still one of the better Star Trek movies out there. and it, 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 That's it, certainly true. And, and it I, still I felt like Kirk and Spock, which is the most important thing with the original cast for me, right? It still felt, it like, felt those like those characters. Kirk and Spock on, on like methamphetamine. I mean, they, they take all the personality traits of the original cast and they shoot them with cocaine and amp and amp all of them up to like 50 so let's start uh, let's start there then let's start so when you mentioned jg as an influence for for this series is this like right. a, is this like a triangulation between the original slash you know 90s series the j and jj and somewhere in between those two because there is a lot of fast talking fast moving on discovery compared to even like the more hectic ds9 episodes wouldn't you agree absolutely um you know and some of that is Star Trek Discovery takes place almost concurrently with the original series. It's not it's not totally clear, but you know, the show starts with the events that seemingly cause the human Klingon war that overshadow that overhangs pretty much the entire run of the original series and only really ends with the sixth Star Trek movie. Um, I was about to say the quest for peace, but it's the undiscovered country. Um, the quest for peace is they make peace in it, but that's the fourth star Superman movie, whatever. Anyway. So, um, you know, this thing had to be a little bit more action heavy, but I think what this show represented was the Brian Fuller, the showrunner looking at the, the start, the new Star Trek movies, which made a fair amount of money and people generally liked. Nobody likes Into Darkness because it's a mess, but people loved the 08 Star Trek movie, you know, and not just Star Trek nerds, but like just general audiences really liked it. And Beyond was very good. It was just by that point, the studio didn't give a shit about it yeah. anymore. And so it was released with no fanfare, no lead up. There was like, they gave, I think, Justin Lin like a month and a half to shoot the whole thing. Yep. I mean, the whole thing was just put together as quickly as they could, and mm-hmm. it was probably as good as it could have been in that setting. Yep. Um, and by the way, every summer, like this past summer, that movie was War for the Planet of the Apes, which most people say was the best of that series and really excellent. Yeah. Every summer, there's one or two movies that get very high ratings from both audience and critics that just don't make money and people don't see. This past summer is War of Planet yeah. of the Apes, and Star Trek Beyond was, I believe, that that one for that summer. I no, I, I would agree with that. You know, it 
It doesn't help when the summer always has two or three major blockbusters that chew up the box office. Pretty much one just replaces the other, replaces the next. So there's always a Marvel movie and there's probably another, a couple of other ones. And Yeah, I'm know, just, was- I, I just – we don't need to talk about Beyond. I just think it's important to point out right. – Justin Lin with six weeks of shooting is still better than every like rock and you know triple X movie and Godzilla <laughs> remakes. I mean, like, there's literally you know hundreds of movies out there that make tons more money than what Beyond made that Beyond's still a ton better than. So it was a mixture of sure. our expectations being high for both the quality of it and for the success of it. The quality was not 100% what we wanted, but if you go back and listen to that review, we, we quite enjoyed the movie, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if the lackluster reception, uh, um, but not by the people who did see it, but all the people who didn't see it, uh, you know, maybe have co- have colored us, our, 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 including myself, colored my sort of historical lenses of that movie. I keep meaning to go back and and watch it. Um, but yeah, but again, it was just another sort of adventure movie. It wasn't. It, it, they tried to be a little bit more sciency than they had in right. the first two movies. I think very self consciously. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I think what Discovery did so well it, it, for me was they called it Star Trek Discovery, and they kept saying it's a return to the Star Trek. And so w- when they throw me in this thing, and I haven't been reading a lot about it or talking with people other than you about it and it's like oh straight up war movie against the klingons to start that completely took me by surprise and so this was another example man of what i always say of like low expectations even with properties you love is like the best possible thing you can do because i i just i I didn't i I wasn't expecting that i I wasn't expecting it and then they do settle in and start getting more star trekky um, and uh, even while it remains serialized, um, I'm going to just say a- as a method of leading in, because the first couple episodes are, are the establishment episodes uh, where right. uh, Sonequa... Um, uh, Martin Green. Martin Green um, uh, is is the uh, the number one. You know, is uh, is the first first uh, officer, first mate of. Um uh, Michelle Yao's uh, character, who's the captain of the ship. Um, mm-hmm. Here's where the spoilers start, people. Again, we will only be spoiling midway through the season. Uh, we're not going to be spoiling anything after they find themselves in an alternate universe. But Michelle Yao dies because maybe a questionable decision by uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, which we'll discuss in a second. Um, but right. th- we're immediately on a planet, on an adventure, and they're in trouble with Klingons, and they're in space, and you know, in their EVA suits, and, and uh, all, all kinds of battle stuff going on. So, I don't know, did you know that, there w- I, I, that this was the setup? Because I didn't realize that, that the beginning of the sort of final giant Klingon war that goes through the undiscovered country, basically, basically was starting here and was going to be what they framed the show about around. I mean, I, yes, I did because I'd read a few reviews of the first couple of episodes that weren't even plot spoilers, but just okay. they made the general point that this is sort of about the start of the human Klingon war. Mm. Although what's interesting is in the original series, the war between the humans and the Klingons is much closer to a cold war than like a real hot, constant combat kind of a deal, in part because the Klingons were meant to be stand-in characters for the communists, for the USSR. I knew that the uh, 
the premise of the show was that it opens with the events that lead up to the start of the human Klingon war. What's a little unclear to me is exactly where all this conflict is going, because in the original series, the conflict between the humans and the Klingons is much more a cold war than really a hot, constant combat war. That's true. Um, in part because Roddenberry, when he conceived the Klingons, meant for this all to be an allegory about the, U- the U.S. and the USSR, which by that point had entered Cold War state. Mm. Um, so how exactly this show ties into the original series is still a little unclear because this isn't how the humans and Klingons relate to each other in the original series. Um, the Klingons also look a lot different, and it's a little confusing if they're going to actually ever deal with that in this one like they did in the Enterprise series. Um, mm. But I knew what the original premise of this was. Uh, and then I sort of – that was where I quit reading. So I didn't quite know where this plot was going to go. I didn't know anything about the spore drive, which we'll mm. get into in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, a thing that might be much more of Battlestar's Hybrid, FTA. Yep. And uh, then warp drive for sure. Yeah, it's like the hybrid. Um, yep. You know the you know this disappear and reappear everywhere is very different than, and it looks very different than how warp drive is per- is usually portrayed. You know where you're sort of in that tunnel, you know, with everything kind of streaming by you. Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, not only that, but the. The human body being the conduit for transportation by like being connected to the whole universe is exactly like the, like the hybrids that we find the Cylons are using that control their ships and sort mm-hmm. of the almost like religious nature of right. you know their connection and connection to the universe. Um, so really quickly, I I think there's way too much Klingon stuff going on. Although again. With the recent revelations in the show, which we can't talk too much about, I'm getting cooler with it because we finally have a, a specific Klingon that we're learning a lot about and her connection with uh, one of the crew members in particular. It's not a particularly positive right. connection. Um, but those first few episodes, there were like extremely long scenes of them talking in Klingon. And not only do they look less appealing than ever, they sound less appealing than ever. Um, and, and I don't know if that's the, uh, the, the show runners uh, making us uh, trying to make us like them even less or just do a, a new vision because they also, you know, they didn't have anything on their heads in the original series and then they yes. changed it for the movies and for, you know, um, Next Gen and Deep Space Nine. And then these guys look a little bit like the ones we briefly see uh, uh, con killing in Into Darkness. Yeah, in Into Darkness. That, that was the closest design. I, I could see mm-hmm. they have claws instead of like just normal hands. Uh, whereas in next gen and original series, they just have hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the original series, they basically look like humans with big eyebrows. I mean, it, it's really a pretty weak makeup effect. Um, and then with Worf, they redesigned them to make them look a little bit more alien. And then in enterprise, which takes place before all of this, they come up with a canonic reason why they look like that. So I don't know where all of that, is is well, going? I don't know if they're going to bother with it. I think it was Star Trek three, um, and, and, and when the Genesis Project movie, where we first saw 
the new design Klingons. I think I'm pretty sure they had all the forehead makeup by by the movies by Star Trek Three. That I, might be right. I don't um, know what the story behind it is, but yeah, some of these Klingons, the the designs look like. You remember the early rumors was that Idris Elba was going to be a Klingon bad guy, and then they made him. Yeah, they not, yes, they yeah. look like. Crawl is that what his name was? Crawl. It Krull? looks like those guys. Yeah. yeah. Um. So anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm not crazy about the Klingons in the series, but also they've never been my favorite. Uh, as I said to you recently, they don't even make sense in a spacefaring or um, uh, civilization because they don't seem nearly disciplined enough to have scientists, yeah. engineers, and so forth. Whereas the Romulans and Cardassians, as evil as they can be, do have discipline and and appreciation and respect for those sorts of things. And then you've got races like the Ferengi that'll steal it from other people or just do it out of sheer greed. But the Klingons seem like one of those um, that... uh, And this will be something to talk about, man. The Prime Directive, which I don't know if they've mentioned directly yet on the show, which is the Klingons are exactly the kind of race that, you know... Warp drive should not be a signal that they are an equal in terms of development <laughs> of civilizations, and it's not clear how they how they keep winning. But I think what made the Klingons work for me in the shows were just the, you know, they were larger than life characters. Like Gowron was so great, I loved Gowron. He mm-hmm. was so psychotic, but like lovable and joke, you know, making jokes. And then Lorsa and what's her name? The sisters were, were fantastic. Oh yeah, them. Um, you know who we met during the uh, the Klingon Civil War. They were working with the Romulans and they were trying to put their nephew on the throne or something like that against Gowron. Um, they were they were. And to be uh, clear, Worf yeah. is pretty smart. I mean, Worf is fully capable of he understanding. Was by humans. He was also raised by That's humans. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, but so there's nothing. There's no genetic reason why they'd be incapable. I would like to imagine that at some point a slightly more science-oriented race maybe tried to invade Kronos and they killed them and stole the warp drive from that ship and then reverse-engineered it. Um, But they do have – there is Klingon poetry and and Klingon art. Like that stuff does exist, so – Yes, um, but lots of primitive warrior tribes have art and poetry, but not necessarily science and engineering. Um, that's true. And so, yeah, and so they seem to be telling us less about the Klingons more. And I agree with you. I don't know where they're going with the Klingon war. But then when we talk about the spore drive, which is a whole new biological form of transportation through space, they're going to have right. to find a way to get rid of that before the yes, continuity comes. So. I think part of the reason, again, we'll keep it somewhat vague, that the, the, the alternate universe stuff has been such a big part of the first season is they're going to have to keep finding ways to kind of, you know, um, create, you know, like world, universe changing events uh, right. to, to, to where th- things get to where they are in the original Star Trek series, right? I mean, because... Yes. It, but, but also, I mean, some of it is just, it's 2018, and we, we're just used to seeing holographic computers everywhere. There's nothing you can do about that. It, it makes no scientific sense connected to the, uh, the technology on the Enterprise in the original series. It, it looks like Iron Man's, you know, apartment building everywhere, you know, which, is, which you have to do. You just, I mean, and just like the, just like the Enterprise and the, and the reboot movie, movies um and you know i guess that's what i think i liked about the reboot movies whole notion of rebooting it was that because they had to accelerate um 
because the scenario forced them to accelerate the progression of the crew members and of their technology, right? Like the one, like one of the only interesting things in Into Darkness was, you know, we we see that the that the high admiral or whatever is the is the evil guy Weller Weller, but his Robocop. ship, yeah, but his ship is like ten times the size of the Enterprise. And, like, yeah. they specifically built that ship because of Nero's ship. They needed a ship that was big enough. So, you know what I mean? So like, Yeah, I just the, wish the ship didn't look stupid. It looks stupid, but but I'm saying they, they at least gave a reason for not only why it's Kirk and Spock on speed, but why, yeah. the, why everything was happening when they were younger and faster and technology was speeding up. But this being a prequel, they have a much tougher job. What's your read on that, on, on that whole thing with this being a prequel? Well, I agree with you. They're going to have to find some way to get rid of the spore drive because if they don't, it asks this question of, okay, we get all the way to Voyager and we still nobody else is using this. So either somebody is going to die and it's going to be just ruled unsafe to use, like too unsafe to use, or it's going to get it's going to get wiped out in its own. Something is going to happen to what they call the mycelial network that's going to render it useless it could be getting them home from the mirror universe is what wipes it out for good i don't want to get too much more into that because it tie into some of the plots of the second half of this season with the klingons the one thing i would say is i think they work as a symbol of what this show is trying to do which is this show more than anything else leads really hard into the idea that diversity and acceptance of multiculturalism is the path forward for humanity that you in both halves of this season you have the enterprise i'm sorry the discovery and by proxy all of starfleet this it's got aliens it's got robots it's got people from different races and different planets and the main character is literally a fusion of two different species you know, where you have the human raised by the Vulcans in Michael Burnham, which is sort of a reverse of, say, uh, Worf's character. And who are their antagonists? Well, in the first half, it's the Klingons, whose calling card expression is remain Klingon, or as movie critic, movie Bob Chipman described it, make Kronos great again. Um, (laughs) And he said that in Klingon in his review, which is pretty good. Then... They flip to the mirror universe, and without getting into the specifics, the mirror universe is a universe in which the Terrans, when they first meet the Vulcans uh, during the events of Star Trek Contact, they rush the ship, kill the Vulcans, steal all their technology, and use it to dominate the other races of the galaxy and set up a society founded on racial purity and very Nazi-ish, like, uh, philosophy. So that in both cases, the antagonists are ones who want to remain pure to one identity, and Starfleet, the unquestionable good guys, want to embrace all identities. Um, And I think this show, maybe what I like about Star Trek is at a moment when that is not exactly a popular opinion, this Mm -hmm. show is leaning heavily on how important that is. Right. Um, you know, I, and Star Trek yeah. has always been about that, uh-huh. but this is the first one where there is an obvious point the show is making about the value of that instead sure. of just 
presenting Starfleet as a post-racial society. Here it's like, no, by giving up these ideas of racial separation, this is how we achieved utopianism. Um, okay, let's wind back towards the beginning real quick. Uh, so the first couple episodes, obviously, it, you know, it, it, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green's character, Michael Burnham, as uh, first officer, she, and this is the only other major thing I don't like about, well, it, this, I, this isn't a thing I don't like, Matt, I just don't understand. Right. It, I, I, I'm not sure why she made all the decisions, so, so, M- Michael Burnham makes some pretty hard calls when it comes to the Klingons, she, right. and, and some of it has to do with her being young, but it also has to do with her having been raised as basically Spock's adopted sister, uh, at least for a while, yes. raised by um, Amanda, Spock's human mother, and by Sarek, um, uh, who's on the show and who's great. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of fans hate that she's, you know, the related adoption through blood to Spock, but it's a great connection. Sarek's the perfect person. It would totally make sense that Spock would never talk about her because, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Romulans because, uh, you know, they never talk about, um, the Vulcans never talk about their feelings and stuff like that. So that's fine. You know, I, I could totally see that, that bit of retconning there. Um, I, I do like that it gives her an advantage in terms of brains and logic but she's still very human and emotional you know they don't try and make her super overcompensate the way kind of spock does so when they meet the klingons somehow she has a connection with sarek who she interprets what he says as saying in order for them to leave us you should attack them and yeah. if you, and then they don't attack them, and then she, you know, she does the the Vulcan death grip thing or whatever, you know, to to the captain. Um, uh, play. Right. What's Michelle Yao's uh, name in the? Uh, Philippa Cap- Giorgio. Giorgio. So so Gior- so Captain Giorgio. She she puts her down. Doesn't do a very good job of it because Giorgio's only out for like a minute, and they're yeah. about to fire on the Klingon ship. Then Giorgio comes back, throws Michael Burnham in the brig, and then immediately all the Klingons jump in, begging the question as to whether it would have been worth a shot to fire on them in the first place. And and what she, what what was your interpretation of Burnham's a Burnham's decision making and b. Uh, you know, her being responsible either through action or through inaction for everything that ends up going on with the Klingons. Because I'm still trying to piece that together, honestly, man. So here's how I interpret the first couple of episodes. And in general, you know, I saw one review of this that didn't like it that for the most part, I thought was just being negative. Uh, this is a site that I've really cooled on my interest in what they have to say over the last six months. But one point they did make is maybe they could have started this whole show with episode three, where they just yeah. introduce the d- entire discovery cast at the same time. And maybe then just feed in the backstory as they get it, um, you know, over time. And I, th- I think there's some merit to that. Although obviously we would have gotten way less Michelle Yeoh, who it's always great to see Michelle Yeoh. Oh, yeah. um, and she probably wouldn't have done the show if they didn't promise her that the first couple of episodes would be all mostly about her. So the way I interpret Burnham's actions is Burnham is raised by Sarek and Amanda because her parents who were humans living on in some kind of like human 
science place on a Vulcan planet or something, gets attacked by the Klingons. They get totally wiped out. Sarek finds her. Which She's exactly, barely alive. Sorry, I just really quickly. It's an exact Worf mirror, right? I mean, Worf, Worf is taken by humans after our, the Kittimer massacre by, was it the Romulans taking out the Klingons, I believe? And then the humans adopted him? I can't remember. Yeah, um, that's, that's what it was. Go ahead, keep going. So, uh, so what happens is Sarek finds her and raises her to be a Vulcan or as, or as good of Vulcan, as much of a Vulcan as a human is capable of, and to suppress all of her emotions in the same way that Vulcans do. And that works for Michael Burnham's character for a really long time. But then when she is faced with the Klingons for the first time, all of the trauma of her parents' murder and this horrible attack on her home overwhelms her. And because she's only ever been taught to suppress emotion, she doesn't have any actual capacity to deal with these emotions in a way that doesn't totally incapacitate her. And so what happens is she completely devolves into this highly traumatized being who is acting purely on instinct and has no capacity to think about what she's doing until way after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So when she is so broken at the end of the second episode, she is realizing that for the first time and only time in her life that she's sort of aware of, logic failed her or she failed logic is maybe the better way to say that. And she failed it so badly that the only human that she ever really liked was killed. So she is not acting rationally in the first two episodes at all. That's the point. She has lost the capacity to act rational because she realizes that being raised Vulcan means she has no idea what to do with all of these traumatic emotions when they crop up. Okay, but let's let's just... Let's pretend the the first part of the scenario didn't happen. Let's pretend they're ju- they're on the bridge and they're just immediately attacked. She doesn't have time to you know do all that stuff. And then she right. proposes the whole plan where we blow off the head of the ship and then we go and we capture the guy and we don't make him a martyr. I'm not convinced that that's a bad plan. Like it just went wrong, right? So I don't know. <sighs> yeah, but what what they try her for? I mean, the starting the war is bad, but the mutinying against her captain and attempting and attacking her that's that's what gets her court-martialed and thrown in jail she i mean the war she was defending herself she attacked her captain no 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 no, no. i'm talking about the klingons the 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 when they're on the the relic and well, she, has she to kill may the have klingon. killed a klingon but yes that stuff is not the stuff that really breaks her what breaks her is her own decision to attack the only human she ever respected because she couldn't deal with the emotions and the trauma of the moment. I just think it doesn't, her reasoning for mutineering against her captain wasn't sold well enough for me. And the reason for her being blamed for the whole war definitely isn't being sold. Now I will say about the sec, the first part is just the writers, in my opinion, not quite succeeding in trying to get us into feeling for just that mother daughter relationship and the betrayal and stuff. I get what they were trying to do. Right. I, I will say in terms of her being blamed for the war, it's possible the writers aren't expecting us to blame her for the war. We're just supposed to see from the outside why they would blame her for the war. That's what I think they're going for. This idea that this, you know, you have this soldier who is tried and court-martialed for mutiny and thrown in jail for life 
for being part of this thing that got a starship captain killed and out of this battle of the binary stars the entire klingon human war starts whether or not her exact role in it in reality was what everyone thinks it would be very easy for people who are losing their comrades to blame her that 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 i think makes plenty of sense you know you blame the one person that you know was sort of responsible and not no ever meeting her you figure it's okay mm. um yeah by the way wharf yeah, so Worf was five when the Kinemar colony was attacked by Romulans, and the USS Intrepid saved him. Chief Petty Officer Sergei Rozhenko, which is where the Rozhenko name comes from, right. and he gets adopted. So I think they're channeling some of that as well. So you're getting, yeah, you're getting some Spock stuff, you're getting some Worf stuff. Um, right. I don't know. I, I mean, will say the thing that, you know, that I had a little bit more trouble with is this entire idea that the Vulcans just preemptively attack the Klingons whenever they see them, and that's why they never go to war with them. I don't really know that I believe Vulcans would actually behave that way. That doesn't seem like a very Vulcan style of uh, uh, behavior. Um, so, well, I also think I think he was saying it maybe happened once, and that was enough to, to warn the Klingons away. Um, I don't know. Th- that was also well before this new movement to unite those clans. So right, sure. they weren't as powerful and well organized. And I think, again, I think the writers were trying to show us that she just learned the wrong lesson from what Sarek was telling her. But it just, you know what I mean? Like, I just think everything yeah. happened so quickly and they were trying to fit so much in um, right. that it, it just didn't all completely come across uh, maybe the way they wanted to. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that review site that you said. I, I'm happy they had those first two episodes. I think what they were saying was the series doesn't really start making sense and picking up until the third episode. But No, the, no yeah. these critics literally said, why couldn't the third episode have just been the pilot? They didn't like this show at all. Um, they're whatever. It's red letter media. They're they're kind of dicks. I'm I'm okay. kind of over them. But I mean, uh, I, I, I'm cool having like an origin establishment story. I am too. But I do think, you know, and we got a very good performance from Michelle Yeoh that we wouldn't have gotten. But I do think if you watch the third episode where Burnham is brought on board the Discovery, context is for Kings, written by Akiva Goldsman, who is a, a very mm-hmm. well. Or, or directed by him, um, you know, you could have started the show there and with a little bit of extra writing got a lot of what happens in the first two episodes into subsequent episodes. You could have done that. It wouldn't have been the hardest task for a writing staff. Mm-hmm. I don't – I like the Vulcan hello and battle at the binary stars, but mm-hmm. I think they are right that Context is for Kings is a soft second pilot and you probably could have just gone with that. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, I you know, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave the Klingon thing here. It would have right. been interesting for them not to structure it around the Klingons, but I guess in terms of lore, you know, that was like their first major mili- military challenge. Um, yeah, it so. would. They would have. They didn't want to create a new alien bad guy. I'm positive, and the Klingons are far and away the principal bad guy of the original series. The Romulans are not nearly as big. They become a bigger deal in Star Trek Next Generation. And then everything that comes from them, the you know, that comes after the the Cardassians, the Ferengi, the Boar, all, all of that's TNG. So yep. if they were going to set this in the timeline of the original series, it had to be the Klingons. 
Yeah, and you know, part of the reason I, I love those those episode, the Civil War episode, Klingon Civil War episodes, is because I think the next generation writers realize what I've been saying, which is logically at that point in particular, the Romulans would be stronger and smarter than the Klingons, and would be a much more dangerous, um, much more dangerous to the uh, Federation. Um, and so if we look at the technology, um, of this show, first of all, the ships look amazing, obviously, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, two ring formation of the discovery while somewhat impractical from a military standpoint looks amazing. Um, mm-hmm. and they certainly do a lot of zoom in shots into the windows, which look completely se- uh, seamless, which, which, which is a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, I, I think, you know, the fact that we see cloaking technology being developed before our eyes is very cool. I think that was probably something they wanted to do. Yes. Um, and this begs the question though, of when you get to the next generation and the Federation is by far the most powerful in the, in the galaxy, you can understand why they wouldn't do cloaked vessels. Uh, At least openly. But in this early phase, you'd think they would be trying to do cloak vessels and stealing technology and stuff, but uh, they they don't really explain why they don't. Um, Why the Enterprise? Why the Federation doesn't steal it? Yeah, why Starfleet in this earlier war Well, they're just becoming aware that it's a technology that exists, so that's some of it. Yeah. And, you know, they, they are having probably a hard time. The problem with stealing tech aboard... enemy spaceships is usually you blow them up and then you can't really steal the tech anymore. So mm-hmm. they'd have to find a way to capture and incapacitate a Klingon ship without destroying it. So, you know, the, the, enter, the Starfleet is very much, I think, reacting to the moves made by the Klingons. The Klingons are the actors in this war and the Starfleet is the reactors. So I, that's why they haven't tried to copy it yet. I mean, this whole war has been going on for, what, six months? And they're just now learning cloaking technology is even a thing that exists. So let's d- dive into some specifics here. And I'm just gonna, I just want to ask you, because, you know, Matt, Matt got me to watch this recently, and I binged the hell out of it, and I loved it. But I- I'm having trouble separating episodes and characters in some cases. <laughs> so I will just throw it to you. Um Let's start with some of the characters. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Sonequa Martin-Green is, in my opinion, killing it on the show. Um, Oh, yeah. She's being asked to carry so much. Um, She's the first lead that's not, you know, like a veteran, older actor or or a man or, you know, whatever, I think. I guess... I guess Shatner wasn't that old or whatever uh, in the original series. Um, who are some of the characters that, that stand out for you? And they don't have to be among the main five or six in the first, let's say, eight or nine uh, episodes of the series that, that have uh, really jumped out. Uh, and when you talk about them, g- give me a sense of, like, did you like them immediately? Did it take you a while to warm up uh, up to them? Like, that, that whole sort of thing. Sure. Uh I also I really like Michael Burnham. I think it's a great character. I am really happy to see Sonequa Martin Green actually have a role with some meat. Like I thought she got famous for being on The Walking Dead as a character named Sasha. I never quite understood what Sasha's character was. I didn't understand why she acted the way she did and it she didn't have a lot to do. It seemed like mostly she was def- defined by having romantic feelings towards other characters who got killed and that made her depressed. I, I, I never thought they used, they 
did much with her. And so I'm glad to see her given some meat and see her doing really well. As somebody who likes Guillermo del Toro, I pretty much have to throw in a plug for Doug Jones as Saru. Mm. Uh, I, I wonder if Doug Jones ever feels bad that he plays all these great characters, but if he just walked down the street, nobody would ever know who he is because all the characters he plays are like fish monsters or goat demons or weird aliens. Like He wears so much makeup and stuff in all his roles that no one actually knows what he, what he looks like. Um, that's true. And then I and I and I really like uh, Gabriel Lorca. I really like Jason Isaac's captain. Great. Uh, you know he feels like a Starfleet captain, but he also feels like a Starfleet captain written by somebody who might have watched a couple episodes of Battlestar Galactica. You know, this is a guy who is not this upstanding moralist. This is a guy who has is a little you know seems like a guy who'll fight dirty. You know. Yeah. Um... I'm trying to think whether to bring in something I haven't brought in yet. I'll, I'll wait. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, he feels like uh, he feels like someone that would have been buddies with Christopher Pike at the academy, right? I mean, I think uh, um, that that and they do mention Pike at some point. I think his uh, name shows up on a, a list of of com- highly oh, yes. re- uh, common de- captains that have received multiple commendations. Mm-hmm. Doug Jones is amazing. Uh, Saru, I wish we found out more about his species um, because there's. It seems like a conglomerations of a lot of aliens we're familiar with, uh, personal just personality wise, um, and so it's kind of hard, hard to put your finger on it. Um, I know they're doing digital stuff on the face, but I can't tell. It looks completely practical. Yeah, to me. I think it, it looks really good. Um, and one thing I wanted to just mention is how Star Trek is reminding me how much aliens in Star Wars are just kind of window dressing. Yes, oh, very really, much so. Especially in the new series, they're really not worried a whole lot about having major alien characters in Star Wars um, yeah. at the moment. And in fact... Moss is the only one. Yeah. So I had, like, not, yeah. She was not in the new one, but she right. like, has two lines, so... Yeah, there's Chewy. Um, yeah, there's Chewy. That's fair. Yeah, but um, uh, but like, but there, but there, it's very tokenism, you know. Like in Rogue One, they have some very cool aliens, but there's never more than one or two cool aliens. Like in the final Rogue One, crew, I think there's one or two like aliens, and everyone else is just human. Um, now in both cases, you know, there are reasons for it. I mean, the Star Wars galaxy, we know specifically that humans colonized. Or whatever their version of humans colonize most of it. We know the Federation is still mostly human, right? I mean, it's that seems to still be the case. But they certainly, by putting guys like Saru very uh, up high and you know having his personality um, so so important, uh, it, it's definitely bet- cooler. Um, and uh, so I guess the first outside property that this makes reminds me of. Um, which itself is super influenced by Star Trek is the Mass Effect video game series. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But what Mass Effect can do is they can make humans the minority because it's a video game. It's, right. You can have not only five, six, even seven dominant alien species that are as powerful or more powerful and more populous than the humans who have right. actually been advanced for thousands and thousands of years, but you can have a, you know every space station you go on, humans are by far the minorities because it's a video game. That's very hard to do in a series, but it seems like the, 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 the series is 
is trying to make a, a good faith effort to make aliens more prominent. Although, other than Saru, I mean, who have we in the Klingons? Who have we really come across? Well, uh, for aliens, yeah, no, they're they're the only really the only the primary ones. But you got to remember with Star Trek, the way Starfleet works is every race that has spacefaring technology tends to sort of have its own like fleet and then if it wants to be part of starfleet it can like there's the vulcan exploratory team or whatever the hell it's called like there are vulcan ships that just do vulcan stuff and so most vulcans just want to do that especially because the that species as this show points out is very susceptible to a, a very overt kind of racism um you know, where they describe Michael Burnham and Spock as almost Vulcans or, or half Vulcan, you know, that they are as racist as these new Klingons are. They're just, they don't want to kill everybody because of it. Um, you know, the, uh, there's one episode that really deals with that uh, in this one. Um, so you won't get every Vulcan that wants to go to space joining Starfleet. You get a few. Uh, the Klingons aren't even are enemies for most of it. So Worf is the only one. The Ferengi have their own ships. So, you know, Starfleet is still based in humans. It's a human, you know, the Starfleet Academy is in San Francisco and most of the ships and the docks are in the general area around the soul, our solar system. So that's why I think aliens are, are always not the, the principal thing. Mm-hmm. There's always one who's the outside character looking in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Phlox or it's Odo or it's, I mean, on Voyager, it was Neelix kind of, and it was also the Doctor. And then to be fair, Deep Space Nine, actually, of the main cast was at least half alien, I think. That's true. If you count Dex as an alien. Which she is. Plus um, Kira. uh, Kira um, and um, uh, fuck, what's his name? The Ferengi. Quark and Quark, and yeah. and Nog, I think, and, Nog and, Nog. and his brother. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so funny those guys. Uh, so yeah, these places I was definitely the most. And then you always had the Cardassians coming through. You always had the Bajorans right. coming through. And then when the when the um, you had Garrick, who was so cool, Garrick was amazing. I love the Cardassians, dude. That's that's a really interesting uh, conflict to me. Um, and then was it the Gamma Quadrant that opened up through the wormhole? Yeah, the Gamma Quadrant. Right. So then you had all these other races coming through. So we'll see. It'll be interesting to see if they do that here. Um, I mean, the aliens on Enterprise, what I've seen of Star Trek Enterprise, just laughable. Yeah. I did like no spoilers, but they did try and pull off an Andorian in, uh, in Discovery, which looked way better than the one in, in Enterprise. That's true, but so Jeffrey bad. Combs is legitimately one of my favorite character actors, yeah. and so I would watch him as Shram, Stram, whatever his name was, all the time, just because I love Jeffrey Combs. I, I think Jeffrey Combs is so fucking cool. So the key, the key of the main cast, um, and I, I think we can spoil one thing because this is in the first eight or nine episodes, which is that there is a gay couple. Uh, yes. Paul Stamets, played by Anthony Rapp, who is definitely in the sort of the permanent cast, and then Doctor Culber, Culber, who's his lover, uh, does die. Um, 
and uh, they're very funny together. Uh, Played so, by Wilson Cruz, who is Puerto yeah. Rican. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we talked about... We, I, I don't know. It's not that I don't like Stamets. I just don't know what to make no, he's of He's of Puerto him. Rican descent. Excuse me. He was born in Brooklyn. Okay. I just don't know what to make of Stamets. But to be honest with you, man, I'd rather have a character that I don't love and don't know what to do with, but still is interesting to watch than all the characters on like The Expanse who are basically the same character over and over again. I agree. And I... I took a class on television at Wesleyan at our, at the school that Jesse and I went to. And one, when we talked about Star Trek, one of the essays I, I, that they, the reading material mentioned a group called the, they called themselves the Galaxians who had been begging for a gay character on Star Trek for ever, for decades uh, because they felt like they were just being constantly shut out of this narrative that they had any place in this utopian future. So to have two out gay characters on the show, it's kind of a sense of fucking finally. I mean, and this show really, in both the characters and the actors, this is a really, really diverse cast. Um, I want to run through some of it a little bit. So Michael Burnham, obviously, Sonequa Martin-Green is African-American, and her character is a human raised by Vulcans. Shazad Latif, who plays Ash Tyler, is of, I believe, Pakistani descent. He's, yeah, he's London. He was born in London. He's of mixed Pakistani and UK descent. He's so good, dude. That guy's been blowing me away on this show. Yeah. Uh, Jason Isaac is Jewish. Uh, I think he's a Jewish, he's either Jewish Canadian or Jewish British um, or Jewish Brit. Uh, then Wilson Cruz, as I mentioned, is an American of Puerto Rican descent. The actor is openly gay. So is Anthony Rapp. Mm-hmm. Anthony Rapp, interestingly, uh, ac- was one of the people who accused uh, Kevin Spacey of, of inappropriate uh, con, uh, you know, yeah, t- trying to assault him, basically. Yeah. They, and, they, and Jason Isaacs came out to support him, and that's what led to the whole thing with uh, R- William Shatner going after Jason Isaacs. Exactly. And then in a smaller role, you have uh, Rekha Sharma, um, who most people will know from Battlestar Galactica. Corey, yeah. yeah, who's Canadian of Indian, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, descent. So really, really diverse cast. And one of the only, like, just truly white people uh, is um, Sylvia Tilly. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about her is it is heavily implied that she is some kind of neuroatypical, uh, which if you're older, the phrase you probably grew up with was on the spectrum. Um, but neurodiverse or neuroatypical is the word they want now. But she mentions having special needs, and she clearly has some, like, there's some social cues she doesn't pick up on. And it really seems to me like the show is implying that she has mild Asperger's or something like that. Uh, and so that's another form of diversity that they're trying to get into this show. Uh, and I really like that too. Um, yeah. And a little bit of a segue, I think episode five is where the show really picked up for me. What mm-hmm. was because, uh, so the, there has been a great redhead on Star Trek before, and that's Gates McFadden. Um, but in general, <laughs> there haven't been a lot of redheads. And when I first met uh, Tilly, played by Mary Wiseman, she, 
she seemed to display at once every single stereotype you see in redhead characters on televisions and movie. Annoying, weird, a little creepy, talks too much, all the stuff, you know, all those sorts of things. But she right. immediately becomes a much more funny and complicated and interesting character. And I didn't think they were going to be able to sell a, a best friendship between her and uh, Burnham. But like by five, you know, they're going running together. She's trying to get, yeah. her, get her on a diet program. There's that hilarious scene where they're at the, the replicator and Burnham like completely cancels out her order or whatever. <laughs> and, right. And, you know, some like healthy vegetarian burrito or something. And, and Tilly just leans in and she's like, and some salsa on the side <laughs> to, to the replica. <laughs> like, like Burnham's not going to hear that it's there. And then you, you're going, I can't believe this woman actually not only wants to be, but thinks she could be a captain someday. But she was really maturing over the course of the show. And yeah. again, no spoilers. We can see that maybe she does have the potential to, to be a captain someday when she's, yeah. when she's put into a position um, that I'll, 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 we'll have to wait for next time to talk more about because it has to do with the mirror universe uh but uh you know what i mean like and so for her to maintain some of the things that 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 i I do like about funny quirky redheads you know on screen but to be does that make sense like yeah i'm like i'm especially sensitive to to, sensitive to it obviously being a redhead but i i I think it 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 almost is better that they're that they are uh, sort of what's the word i'm looking for they're like overthrowing our expectations in a way by taking some of those things subverting them and then but taking them in totally new directions where she is talking too much but because it's funny you, you just you don't want it to stop especially seeing burnham's reactions and again that goes back to my belief that her character has something going on with her where she can't quite control that and that it's like a nervous tick of hers that she probably actually feels a little bit of self-conscious about like i I get that vibe off of her very much so yeah she's chatty but it's because she's uncomfortable with social interaction and she doesn't know how and that's what she does when she gets nervous around people. But then, but then she'll do things you don't expect. Like when Tyler comes on board, she's like, "He's so hot! I heard he killed six Klingons." And then yeah, she right? immediately sits down next to him, and she's just like, "So I heard you killed six Klingons, or something like that." You know, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Um, and I immediately shipped. Uh, I immediately shipped Burnham and uh, and Tyler the way that. She, you know, Burnham's trying to act disinterested and like, yeah, I'm a traitor. You probably don't want to talk to me. And he immediately like puts on the, well, I'm not going to judge you. It's like the here and now. Like, you know, it's not like he was hitting on her right away, but like you could tell he was fascinated or whatever. Um, And uh, their relationship has been really interesting. Certainly way more interesting than than the Expanse uh, couple who I already forget who those characters names are. I mean, can we just agree that uh, that this episode, that these 12 episodes are way better than what the expanse has done overall yeah i'm not sure there's been one episode that was as good as home but i'm true i would be pretty confident in saying these shows are probably better than every episode of the expanse except home i also don't see a lot of the expanse in this particular show again i think its direct influences are obviously previous star trek the abrams movies and battlestar galactica like and to give it a good example of that so there is one episode where uh, Lorca's commanding officer comes on the 
uh, Discovery to basically check up on him. And he gets her drunk. And there's this scene where the two of them are, are sitting together drinking in his quarters. That struck me as almost like I feel like I've seen that scene five times in Battlestar Galactica between Adama and Roslyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got a really strong Adama Roslyn vibe off, out of those scenes. So the, I, <laughs> I think the Battlestar connections are clear, and you know, and I've talked tons about Battlestar over, over over the years on the podcast. Even though I've never done a single Battlestar podcast, which is bizarre. Maybe that's why I'm always talking about it. But um, <laughs> I, I do think that they're coming by it honestly on on, on this show. Yeah, I, they're definitely not ripping stuff off directly. And no, and uh, I think Brian Fuller is definitely. A- a fan of Battlestar. I I've never seen him write about it, but I glanced at his Twitter feed and he's tweeted at least twice about Battlestar Galactica, which makes me think he watched it and makes me think he liked it. Yeah. And again, you know, Ron Moore and a bunch of people who worked, especially on the early episodes of Battlestar came from the Star Trek, uh, you know, universe. So it's, it's not so different as people think. Um, or disconnected, at least. I, I will say, if I just after the first three or four episodes, especially the the character of Isaac's um, mm-hmm. and his relationship to Tyler and so forth, uh, it reminds me more of a show that is I still think the best sci-fi show since Battlestar, which is Stargate Universe. Which even though it only lasted two years, it shared something with Battlestar that Star Trek lacks. I want to run this by you because I had never really thought about it in such terms. But sure. what Battlestar and Stargate Universe both have is, yes, they're on far-flung parts of the galaxy and they're trying to get to some place millions of light years away for different <laughs> reasons. But you know, th- there's only a limited number of them. They don't know how to get there, and so there's lots of mystery, and they're always on the go, and you know, and stuff like that. Um, but. Um, they both have sort of three divisions in their society. Now, in Stargate Universe, it makes sense because it's just us. Like, Stargate, you know, if, even if you guys have just seen the original movie from the 90s, like, it's literally modern-day technology. We just happen to be able to open these ancient gates. And so any new alien technologies that we get is because we go through these gates to other worlds and try and figure out how to use them. But it's not in the future anything like that. Um, and Stargate, they step through the wrong gate, and then about an alien ship on the other side of the galaxy that's so old that literally, dude, they can't even control all the propulsion of the ship till midway through the second season. Like, they have n- almost huh. no control over the ship. They spend the first five episodes just trying to get air, water, and open doors, essentially, and allows for great character building. But what it shares with Battlestar... It sounds like the setting for Voyager. Yeah, yeah. But, but what, what it shares with Battlestar from a character uh, standpoint, structurally, uh, in terms of the characters and the narrative, is you have three divisions. You've got the military faction, you've got a civilian faction, and you've got a science faction. And Robert Carlyle uh, in, in Strike Universe is somewhat similar to Baltar in that he's this totally insane scientist, but because of his charisma and brilliance, there are people that are just attracted to what he, he's trying to do or claims he's trying to do. Now, Baltar, right. we know, is just a piece of shit uh, in, in Battlestar. We're not privy to the inner mind of, of Robert Carlyle in Stargate, and so he's this sort of maybe villainous, maybe not villainous character. Like He kind of tricks them into the space 
spaceship because no one would have gone voluntarily and he needs other people to be there even though it's probably going to kill them all um and then you've got uh louis ferreira who's the commander the military the old grizzled military commander very in the the jason isaacs uh vibe of you know being old school honorable trusting military people more than non-military people you know also sort of how adama and ty start at the beginning of battlestar and then you have the civilian faction and and in battlestar you have you do have a president who the military sometimes listens to and sometimes don't um and uh the civilian faction in uh Stargate universe is led by um uh, Ming-Na Wen, uh, who's right. on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and is a veteran actress, has done all sorts of stuff. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is it creates an interesting tension having those factions and the different factions team up against the other factions um, or, right. or all go at each other. Whereas, I, you know, I think one of the cool things, but also one of the limiting factors of, of all of the Star Trek is that Starfleet is this monolithic thing. And right. so if you're going to have story episodes or storylines where there's conspiracies or high-level people going at each other, it's just some Starfleet people with certain ideologies going, you know, going against other Starfleet people with certain ideologies. But you're expected to be you know, military, political, and science all in one in Starfleet. Um, so I don't know. I, does, does that make sense? And like, do, is there a way in which we could see more factionalization? Um, or, or is it going to be like, oh no, these, you know, like Starfleet command has just been taken over by brain uh, ear, earwigs or, or whatever, you know, and that's what leads to, to dissent among the senior, the sort of the senior ranks. Yeah, you're referring to an, uh, what a, like a first or second genera- season episode in Next Gen there. I That looked kind of cool, but was overall kind of silly. I I don't want to see Star Tre- uh, Starfle- Starfleet fragment. I am perfectly happy with Starfleet going up against other organized species that have their own goals and cultures and ideas and having to clash against them than having to then being under out then Starfleet being undone by its own internal vices. I think sort of the point of the show is that if you give into that, then what was the point of all of this genocidal war that the humans just barely survived? Like, Mm. you know, that was the, the eugenics wars were what tore humanity apart and put it nearly on the brink of extinction. And, rallying together they just managed to survive go to space get a big leg up from the vulcans Mm -hmm. and in so doing we're able to kind of overcome a lot of their own bullshit their Mm -hmm. capitalism their racism their willingness to like leave people behind like i have always kind of thought that there's no poverty in starfleet because when humanity was at the brink of death Everybody who was still alive realized we can't let people starve on the streets anymore. There aren't enough of us anymore. We need literally everybody to be alive just to keep the gene pool fresh enough to sustain multiple generations of breeding because we are that close to extinction. So if we fragment Starfleet, we are just going to be going back to that, and I don't really have any interest in that. Um, Sure. Unless you're going to set it in the way far future and it's this idea that Starfleet peaked and now is crumbling like the Roman Empire, you could do that. I don't really want to see that. I want the positive utopian vision of the future. Um, I I want it. I need it. I, I think 
we would be doing a massive disservice to ourselves to want Star Trek that it gets rid of that. Well, yeah, and, and spoiler alert, in Stargate Universe, after, like, numerous coups and conflicts, like, by necessity, they ultimately do come together to try and survive and start trying to get back home to each other. That's just the journey they go to. The thing that this reminded me of, though, was less the fragmentation and more the, even though I know they're not completely disconnected from the rest of the Starfleet universe, like, they do a really good job aesthetically and atmospherically of making us feel how alone they are on their ship, on their mission. And that, I think, is really cool, you know? I mean, there's, you know... This show does what Enterprise couldn't do. I I, I think the way the uniforms look, the way the episodes are shot... Right. All of it is enterprise, but at a much higher level of, like, of successful yeah. execution. Right, but but like Starbuck could only exist in a Battlestar Galactica type scenario because yeah. in Starfleet they just lock her up in the breaker, kick her out. Right, I mean. Starbuck could only be Starbuck because they need her so badly just to survive that they let her get away with the bullshit most of the time, right? Um, And, uh, but also, you know, like Lee Adama and his dad, like, only can reconcile because of how crazy the situation. They have to reconcile. The president, and and that's what I, you know, I always talk about with Battlestar. Oh, this is, this was the question I wanted to ask you, man, about the characters is. Right. So if you look at Battlestar for the first couple seasons, Ty and Adama and President Roslin and Starbuck and Apollo and so forth, they can act irrationally or unpredictable at times, but you don't ever really suspect what's deep down in them. Like, you kind of know who Starbuck is, you know? Right. You kind of know who Lee is. The only... And and we even know who Baltar is because he's talking to Six, so we get his inner monologue because he can't even hide it from himself. The only two characters I could think of from the early seasons of Battlestar that you don't really know what the fuck they're up to is Ellen... And um, Ty's wife, who comes back out of nowhere. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and Tom Zarek, the former terrorist who... Oh, yeah. Those two, you never really know until much, much, much later in the series what their true intentions are. Um, even a character like Tori, who comes in like midway through the se- series as the president's new advisor. Right. P- people think of Tori as a bad guy because when she finds out in the final season she's a Cylon, she goes kind of nutso. But before and she then... she kills uh, Chief Turrell's wife. Oh, she's that, horrible. She's horrible. That, but that, she that didn't nice, even know. Uh, Callie. She killed Callie. You killed Callie. Okay. Yeah, she killed Callie. But, but I'm Callie saying, was just like a genuinely nice person. Callie was the sweetest. But I'm saying, Tor- that's what I'm saying. Tor- they did not know that they were Cylons until they were told they were Cylons before right, season four. And yeah. she did all the president's dirty work. Like, they wouldn't have been able to smuggle the uh, Hera, the baby Hera, without Tori. Like, Hera was always doing the president's dirty work. Like, she was genuinely trying to do the right thing. And then they changed her role, which was fine. They made her just into a straight up bad guy, which is totally fine. But. So, so who, uh, again, we can't talk completely about some of the characters' um, right. uh, uh, motivations because there's been some major reveals in the last couple episodes. Um, yeah. But and I don't want to spoil it in part because I want listeners, you to watch the show. It's yes. a good show. Yeah. I really yeah. like it. And I, all, I genuinely recommend that yeah. you budget out the extra eight bucks to pay for it for at least a month. You know, get... Yeah. Watch all of it, or or get a week free once it ends on February 11th, and watch the whole thing in a week because it's very bingeable. Yeah. 
But so I, I don't do, want to tell you everything that's going to happen because sure. I want some people to watch it and experience it. But but I do think that the three or four main young characters that are on there from the beginning, um, Saru, uh, yep. Stamets, Tilly, Burnham. Yep. I think I mean Stamets goes a little nutso because he's got spores in his body and he's got all sorts of yeah. weird Stamets DNA is stuff. Stamets fun to watch, but I don't think he's a very complex character. Yeah, like he's one review I read described him as basically a vocal tone. Um, and I think there is some truth to that. He's mm. very funny. And like when he's all sort of stoned because of the, the sports stuff, <laughs> it can be quite enjoyable to watch. It's funny. But I don't know that he's really uh, a character. I'm not he, sure he ever was. But yeah, he reminds me of if they if they crossed um, Alan Tudyk with the guy from um, uh, American um, – What's that show? American Family? What's it called? American Modern Family? Modern Family, yeah. The blonde, the blonde redhead guy in Modern Family. Who's oh. he, who he sort of <laughs> also looks like. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually funny. I never thought of that cross, but yeah, that would, that would do it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I bet just you. It would have been hilarious if in his dream world, his alternate self was being played by Alan Tudyk because – it, it was, you know, and, and that's the thing that Star Trek gets to do, and when they do it well, it's so fun, is they create mirror universes and hallucinations and holograms and stuff so that they yeah. get to play different versions of themselves. But what I was going to say was, of the characters that we started with, right, in the beginning, I, I don't really suspect, I mean, Tilly for sure, Stamets I think so, Saru, you know, we kind of know where they're coming from. And yeah. I think, if anything, what, what Star Trek Next Generation suffered from was that there wasn't a single member of the even the extended main cast who we ever suspected yes. of ever doing anything bad, other than Riker, maybe. And that's what made Riker interesting, was that he would just fly off the handle, but then that became a characteristic of Riker, would be like, okay, Riker's just going to fly off the handle occasionally. Right. Um, but you literally and had to have Picard... And sit weirdly in a chair. Yeah. Yeah, you literally had to have Picard, you know, taken over by the most evil and destructive and powerful alien race ever to make him evil. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of first contact, so yeah, so the 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 alternate universe that you guys will hopefully experience and we'll talk about next time is it, it, is like if you watch Star Trek First Contact and it's it, the way I envisioned it is you know how uh, Zephyr Cochran puts on. Steppenwolf or whatever and starts dancing to ZZ Top and he's like trying to get the Vulcans into it but then all of a sudden there's like an ambush of like 300 like guys from Mad Max essentially (laughs) well what happens is they actually shot it in in Enterprise uh, some of the plot of the the Mirror Universe episodes of Enterprise if you're going to watch this show you may want to go watch those episodes is because this the there same is a, one. Is this that mirror universe? Yes, it's the same mirror universe that uh, we've seen through. It shows up in uh, DS Nine a bunch, classic Trek. Obviously, it never was in TNG and never was in Voyager that mm-hmm. I remember. But in Enterprise, there are there's a two parter that's set in the mirror universe, uh, and some of what happens in that has a direct effect on this. So it may be worth watching those two episodes or not but they reshot the the scenes from first contact and they got the same guy who played Zephram Cochran in the movie um and what happens is they go to warp they draw who passed away recently actually yeah you know uh so they go to warp the Vulcans 
Yeah, James Cromwell. Uh, they go to warp. They land. The Vulcan ship lands, and the Vulcans are like, "Hi, we're the Vulcans." And Cochran is like, he he just raises up a a knife, and he's like, "Kill them all and take their ship," or something like that. And they just rush the Vulcan ship and just slaughter all of the Vulcans. So they actually shot the scene you're describing, and it's pretty much the way you describe it. One of the coolest episodes, and this came up because I was listening to our first podcast, and you had forgotten this, that uh, and so, so in the first season of Next Generation, Denise Crosby played Tasha Yar, who was the security officer. Right. And they kill her off, and then Worf comes on. But then, like, three seasons later, they're meeting the Romulans, and they, there's a blonde-haired Romulan that looks, that's played by Denise Crosby yeah. that looks exactly like Tasha Yar. And it turns out there's an alternate timeline where there's a USS Enterprise-C... With it, that encounters a rift in space-time, and, and some of the members of Enterprise-D end up on it, and Tasha Yar is on that one. And she has a baby with somebody, and then it crosses back into the main universe or something like that, and then, uh, with a Romulan. Um, oh, no, right. yeah, she, yeah, and then so she grows up as a Romulan or whatever. So they did have an alternate universe at least once or twice, but I, I guess... I don't yeah, think that's the one. mirror universe, though. I, I think it was an alternate. that's it just... Was alternate. It was alternate, yeah. Yeah. It was... Uh, um, how did they describe it? Uh, Pocket universe or just an alternate timeline? Uh, yeah, they, they call it a temporal rift. Sure, that sounds the, right. From 1990, the episode was called um, Yesterday's Enterprise. It's yeah. It's the third yeah, yeah. season. Yeah. So. Um, Fun fact, by the way. Yes. Uh, Brian Fuller wrote two episodes of uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. One of them, the teleplay, was by Ron Moore. Ron Moore also wrote Yesterday's Enterprise, I'm seeing right here. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Ron Moore was the Klingon guy, I know. Ron Moore was like, when they needed a war episode, like a dark war episode, they'd go to yeah. Ron Moore. And this is a pretty dark episode of DS9. It's one where Kira is, for a little while, she was carrying one of her crewmates' babies. I can't, I can't remember whose exactly. But she gets kidnapped by a Cardassian who, when she was like in her terrorist days... Uh, fought and attacked and disfigured, and so this guy is killing her entire like ex-terrorist cell. Mm-hmm. And so then he finally gets her, and he's about to kill her. And sh- but he sees that she's pregnant, so he's going to extract the baby. And so she begs for a sedative, just out of mercy. And he says, "Okay." But the sh- the series established early on, sedatives don't work on her because of something. And so she wakes up and then kills the guy. It's extremely dark. It's like a super dark episode of DS9. Um, but a good one. I remember this one. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, um, so... so so as we talked about some of the characters, um, so l- let me go back to the beginning, go ahead to the final section here, and re-ask the question that we sort of asked rhetorically a couple times, which is, does this feel like Star Trek to you? Yes. And the reason it feels like Star Trek to me is it gets... The fundamental thing about Star Trek that I actually think the movies got wrong, which is Star Trek and Starfleet officers, first and foremost, think of themselves as explorers. The motto of Starfleet is ex astra scientia, which means from the stars knowledge. They are not a peacekeeping armada, which is how Christopher Pike describes them in the Star Trek 08 movie. They are a collection of basically scientists who know how to fight when they have to, who want to explore space. And this show 
feels like even as they are at war with the Klingons, they are exploring this mycelial network and they're exploring uh, the mirror universe. The show gets that Starfleet officers are first and foremost explorers. In the original shows, Picard calls himself an explorer all the time. Janeway calls herself an explorer all the time. Isn't Enterprise, there a sense of delusion about this, though, Matt? I mean, in, in a cool way, in terms of the writing and the drum, like Starfleet. In, it, I think Starfleet has deluded themselves that the military is just, you know, I mean, because they end up using the Enterprise to fight more often than not whenever sure. there's, something comes up, right? Well, except I would say the majority of of next gen episodes do not involve combat. Mm. at least not ship to ship combat you know sometimes they got to fight somebody on a planet but most of them are not actually about fighting you might be right but within the characters themselves think of themselves as explorers first and foremost now if they're actually soldiers who are deluding themselves that's a debatable point that's an arguable point but they think of themselves as explorers and i get the sense that so do these guys except maybe Lorca. It's a little unclear what, what, how Lorca thinks of himself. Um, I mean, Riker definitely sees himself as a warrior, I think, uh, to a certain degree. But Picard doesn't, and the crew follows Picard's lead. Well, that's true, but that's what made First Contact such a great bookend. For I mean, if you just ignore the movies that came after that, First Contact <laughs> was such a great bookend because of how militant he, he gets in that, um, in that, in that film. But when um, Picard gets militant, it doesn't work at all. You know, the, I will make them pay. Like, all of that stuff, we're like Picard. This far, well, no farther. I love it. It's great. Yeah. I, it didn't feel like Picard. Like, this the next-gen crew is not a good crew for an action movie. And uh, I, I love First Contact. It's uh, the best of... It's the, the well, best it's only of Picard the- and Worf. They're the only ones that fight. Data's a prisoner right. and everyone else. I agree with you. They did the exact right thing. They said, we're going to have Worf and Picard be the fighters and everyone else will right. be on the planet or doing other stuff. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I still think that movie works right. brilliant as a tale of the final battle against the Borg and first contact all at once. I don't know how they made that work. Right. Even DS9 even as they're stuck basically guarding this thing, they still think of themselves as explorers, especially up until the war with the Dominion starts. And then they, they're warriors. But through the first bunch of seasons, they're exploring the wormhole, which they don't understand, that has these weird godlike aliens in it. They're exploring the Gamma Quadrant when they can, even though they don't ever feel safe doing it. Uh, so there's still this sense of exploration in DS9, which is on a starbase that can't go anywhere. And then they go to war, and then it's all war stuff. Mm-hmm. So this show, in a way that the new movies, the Abrams verse movies, never got, are about people who think of themselves as explorers and scientists. And that's, I think, what makes this show still a purely Star Trek show. So just to tease it, uh, Captain Isaacs isn't necessarily Captain, Captain Isaacs. Lorca. Captain Lorca. Is it necessarily who we think he is? But we kind of get that feeling from the beginning, but we don't know why. Um, I'm assuming we're going to get some answers to that, and we'll have to we'll save that for the next podcast. Yeah. And any other characters of the sort of the second or third sort of tier uh, that you're interested in finding out more that we think we've haven't seen the last of? 
maybe it's Rain Wilson's mud character, or like there might be more to to them uh, than we uh, than we think. I doubt we're going to see Harry Mudd again. Harry Mudd is a comic relief character from the original series. I don't. He might show up next season, but he's always just showing up with his schemes and then running away. He's not a particularly like deep character. Um, I would like to see more Sarek just because I like James Frain and I, I every time he shows up on screen, it's memorable, even if it's very very weird and creepy. Uh, and I'd like to see Detmer get a get an episode just. Because she's on the show, and everybody in Star Trek gets an episode at some point. I don't mm-hmm. know if Detmer is going to have anything to do this season, but mm-hmm. it would be nice to see her get one one episode explaining who she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you and I have vastly different opinions about Cat in BSG, but I would even even she got a couple of episodes. Um, so well, you know. <laughs> That's, she's not a character worth arguing over because she's so minor. Yeah, um, but she gets her episode before she bites the dust. Which the That's second true. they started explaining what she her backstory, I was like, oh, she's she's dead. There's no way she's not dead at the end of this episode. Right, and and again, you have to separate characters from when the writers decide to do something completely out of character for that character. I mean, right, but I never understood what her character was. She was just the the she's chick just a pilot. who was. She's yeah, the pilot who doesn't like Starbucks for yeah. no reason. Yeah, no, but th- for the same reason, guys fight for no reason. It was great having women with testosterone going at each other for yeah. no reason. All that right, was the whole enough. point. Yeah, yeah, uh, you have a pretty strong alpha personality to want to drive a Viper. So okay, she's this tiny little Latina getting up in Starbucks face, and because she says you're an alcoholic and you're a fuck up, and you know, it's, right. it's great. I love it. Um, the, and, that, then that, she's, yeah. and then Starbucks like you're a drug dealer and a right, fuck up. So yeah, <laughs> neither of them really. Nobody has moral high ground in Battlestar no, Galactica. No, 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 no. Everyone is PTSD all all the. I mean, Ap- Apollo's the closest, but he's so yeah. self self righteous that he loses some of that that goodwill and has to has to tone it down for sure. It's kind of um, clueless. Like there's a little bit of a naivete to him that yeah would disappear in this setting where everybody is like yeah. bloodlust out the ass. <laughs> okay, so here's the other comparison um, where there's some similarities, some differences to BSG slash SGU and then with Discovery, which is when you're in a BSG or SGU situation where you're trying to get home and, you know, even the right. quote-unquote standalone episodes are never truly standalone because you're always looking for clues about stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even when there was, like, the occasional SGU episode where they're at a planet and they were trying to decide, well, the ship's going to jump. We can't even control the ship. How long are we going to stay here? Oh, we found something interesting. Like, they would always find some nugget that would either confuse the situation or would that would teach them something or, you know, show them the way or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Whereas with Star right. Trek, where you're specifically going out to explore, you literally could have an entire Star Trek series, which was most of Next Generation, of just standalone episodes. B- but Discovery's... Because of the Klingon thing and, and, you know, some other things that have gone on, there have been episodes that I felt like are classic standalone episodes. Um, 
that uh, that don't end up being classic stand that that end up being part of the serialized story in this first season, which I think is awesome. And I think by them doing fifteen, I don't know if you agree with me. By doing fifteen, it ensures that they can at least give us a few minutes of uh, you know central story stuff moving forward as it goes along each each episode, right? Whereas, like, as we talked about, like, with CW or the old Star Trek shows, like, you can't possibly serialize every episode of a 26-episode right. uh, season. Um, yeah. I, I guess the only episode that was a straight-up old-school Star Trek, yay, science, let's all learn a lesson, is when they go to the planet, and the classic, you know, and Saru falls in love with the planet, and he's in peace, but he, blah, 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 right? That, that seemed right. to be the one kind of old-school next-generation um, a- a- episode um, has that balance been working for you overall? First of all, what did you think of that episode? And second of all, has the b- this balance of serialized mixed with old school Star Trek stuff been working for you? Um, I liked that episode. Uh, CV Pachem Parabellum is what it's called, which translates to "If you want peace, prepare for war," um, which is an old expression um, that certainly works with the theme of that episode. I I mean, meeting an alien planet and, and they've got weird technology and making first contact is all nice. Doug Jones hypnotized is not my favorite look for Saru. Um, and it certainly portrays him at his most weak. And given that his character is kind of like his species are hunted for prey. So they have natural abilities to sense threats and sense death. So they're kind of, are naturally a a little on the cowardly side. Like Mm. I've seen other sides of that character that I've liked a lot more, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the mirror universe episodes. So we'll get into that next time. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the only truly standalone episode I think is the Harry mud episode magic to make the sanest man go mad where he's got them trapped in a temporal loop basically. And it's, it's very funny. It's. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be a comedy episode, even as it has some fairly dark scenes. Um, but let's not forget the original series had the trouble with tribbles. So Star Trek can be funny when it wants to be. That it doesn't have to be humorless. Um, my complaint with Battlestar Galactica is there's two funny scenes in the entire show. Um, I would strongly disagree with that, but we don't need to talk about it now because <laughs> I've seen the episodes like ten times each, and you haven't, so that's fine. Um, but uh, I, let me. I have some notes from our uh, our old talk that I think are applicable. I want to run by you. I have two major flaws with sort of how Starfleet is portrayed, um, and uh, I'm curious to see if either of these will, will be addressed. Um, the first one I'm just going to mention because they haven't really been in this situation yet, which is the um, Prime Directive. Uh, and specifically right. the notion that being able to get warp speed has anything to do with the moral, ethical, you know, maturity of your... I mean, just look at us. Like, humanity, we could get warp speed, but we're at each other's throats and destroying our planet. I don't know that that makes us advanced. Uh, and there's going to be plenty of races that discover, you know, peace and harmony and so forth that just don't physically don't have the resources that could could actually be smarter than us, but don't have the physical resources. Um, and so I think the prime directive should be based on on that. Um, they, have, right. they haven't had to deal with that yet in the new one. But my main one is 
you know, and especially in next generation where they're always dealing with some scientific thing, they're always sciencing the shit out of stuff, but it never leads to any new major technological advances or discoveries. It's like, right. let's just get out of this, you know, nebula, or let's get out of this talking cloud, or who's this creepy girl that keeps appearing, you know, on, on our ship or whatever. Like, let's, right. you know, and, and, and it never leads to any tangible um, advances, and that's what uh, another thing that was wasted with the uh, with Star Trek Enterprise show was that could have been the show that was like here's how we came up with all the scientific advances that at least would have been more interesting right. than what we got. I'm hoping we get some here. What are the chances we get some actual? I mean, the spore drive. With this isn't a spoiler because this happens earlier. The spore drive is a major technical advance, although we're we're learning now that again there's more to it than meets the eye. Um, does this does this make sense? Like the yeah, you know, I mean, I I I think in the uh, the episode that came we did right before or right after Beyond, you know, I talked about how Star Trek has a collection of basically six technologies. It's right. got transporters, replicators, warp drive, phasers, photon torpedoes, and the holodeck, and that's pretty much it. So I have I don't mind that there's not a whole lot of new stuff that they keep inventing because. If you think about it, if the show is a show about scientists using science to solve problems and they're constantly coming up with new solutions and then using those new solutions to solve new problems, I feel like I would just get lost in the of just, oh, we invented this new technology. Next episode. Oh, we invented this new technology. So maybe they can push the warp drive. Maybe they do some stuff where they experiment with trying to get to warp 10 and it fucks everything up. I, I think – this show is more of the we have these new technologies we don't know how they work and we're learning what the dangers of them are. So the spore drive I think is going to is going to go away because it's a new thing and they're realizing that whatever the risk whatever benefits it has is not worth the risk. Yeah, no I know I know what you mean. It doesn't have to be like these huge advances, but just something kind of pro- like a progression of of little things that they do. Um, you know, I guess none of the shows really do it. Uh, you could even just, I guess, even like the Spore Drive being something that, yeah, that carries over multiple shows. It, hi, CC, is cool. Um, you know, for example, like in Battlestar, they build the the stealth fighter, and you think it's just a one off episode about like you know the chief and and Hilo working together and everyone right. coming together to build it. It ends up saving their ass, and even though it does get destroyed a few episodes later in the Pegasus series, like that that thing does save their ass big time in taking down the resurrection ship. So, it, it, yeah, I would be that would be the cool middle ground for me. Would be like let's develop a technology for a series of episodes because we are following these arcs, and you know to to, to do it or whatever, um, if that makes sense. Um, but because there is definitely mm-hmm. some improvement from here till next generation. I mean, the the Enterprise D would destroy this ship in a point three seconds, right? Most likely, right? Uh, yeah. Um, One would think. Very likely. I mean, the Enterprise D is much faster, and it seems to have better weaponry too. So, mm-hmm. um, what was your interpretation of the space monster? Um, and uh, actually, in in uh, in Star Wars Rebels, I think season one or two, they discovered these like space whales that were able to hyperspace biologically. Uh, that was kind of cool. Um, so they discover this. 
um, this like giant pig alien pig creature, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm still not really able to wrap my 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 head around the whole spore drive thing. The tardigrade. The tardigrade is a real creature. It is a mic. It is the smallest known creature in existence. It is a microscopic little. I think it's sometimes called a water bear that looks like that. It's got a big long body and a weird kind of mouth that kind of protrudes outward to suck up food. It can live in. It's immune to like pressure. It can live at the bottom of the ocean. It can survive in space. It's immune to radiation. It's a really cool creature hmm. that got really popular after uh, hmm. um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos reboot. So hmm. taking a giant one and saying, yeah, its DNA is the key to the mycelial network. I actually thought it was cool to see a giant tardigrade. Um, so, wait, and we got a fucking space whale. But yeah, yes, that. But was, was the <laughs> giant one a collection of them or it was one itself that just got really big it's unclear it seems to be a either a giant one that got really big or maybe it's implied that like the dna of a giant one which they're native to some other planet found its way to earth because there is like this theory that maybe the way life came to earth is on asteroids that bacteria that could survive in space crashed onto earth and got stuck there and that yeah. evolved into us so maybe from maybe Mars. if we yeah yeah maybe if we did find alien life we would actually find some genetic similarities hmm. um I, so, I totally missed the connection to real world science on that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's really uh, cool that's awesome yeah the tardigrade the water bear it's a real thing uh cool man well i'm, I'm excited to see the last few episodes um I'm not even mad that we can't really talk about the the, the coolest stuff because we don't know what it, the coolest stuff is going to result in because we've mm-hmm. still got three more episodes to see where it's going. But needless to say, listeners, if you haven't watched the show, watch it. And there, the 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 mirror universe thing is real, and it's fucking just some of the coolest stuff you'll ever see. And there, and man, there, there were twists in these series that you should have seen coming a mile away. And me going back and watching bits and pieces of a couple of the earlier episodes, you can totally see the seeds planted. And that is really, really hard for a new show, especially a Star Trek show, which is, let's be honest, Star Trek is not known for, you know, like jj abrams-esque plot twists and so forth (laughs) you know i mean it's not a bad thing it's just like that's not its mo right i mean the 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 next generation in ds9 that we grew up on had some great storylines but it wasn't shocking in the way that some of the shocking developments were here i haven't felt that any of them were particularly cheap either they all seem they all seem kind of earned as as a watcher to me i agree um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if they order up more episodes for the next season or whether they they stick to 15. I hope they stick to 15. I'm sure you've noticed, by the way, that some episodes are as long as 49 minutes and some of, uh, are less than 40 minutes. Yeah, and I like that. Um, yeah, and I think actually the shorter ones work a little bit better than the longer ones. Um, the most recent one that aired actually, man, was 39 minutes, which is hard to believe considering how much happened in it. Um, but, you know, bet- the, putting this online and letting them do it, you know, they can make them as long as they want, as short as they want, blood, sex, violence, the whole thing. Uh, yep. Again, though, I don't think... 
And I just, I, I actually think the F-bomb thing was hilarious. I, you had mentioned it to me, and then I forgot yeah. it. I forgot who was going to say it. And then when Tilly says, fuck yeah, or whatever, I did laugh. This I, is I'm not so fucking lie. cool, is what I, you said. I laughed. I did laugh. I'm not going to lie. But the, just the fact that they can do it, that we could see sure, se- why not? sex scenes and whatever, you know. I, there's no way this is gonna, can be on CBS Network. And I, I would argue I would not want this show. I would love to not have to pay for this show, but I definitely mm-hmm. do not want this coming on network television. And, you know, Battlestar was originally going to be ordered for NBC. NBC aired the pilot for Battlestar on NBC in prime time. And NBC Universal was thinking about putting Battlestar, but they just thought it was too weird. And uh, honestly, they realized that it, it weren't going to be able to reach its full artistic potential on network television. And I think we're clearly seeing that with Discovery, right? I mean, yeah. you know, the example I always use is, is Arrow. I mean, it, yeah, would putting Arrow on Netflix solve everything? No, there's still a ton of problems with Arrow, but it would help, you know, having it be an, something where they can do more of a Daredevil, Jessica Jones uh, style thing. Um, right. Thoughts? I No, I... The show as it exists only works as a, uh, an online show. I would love to see Star Trek come back on mainstream television. And so I hope this is maybe a proof of concept that people still want Star Trek. And I would love to have a Star Trek I didn't have to pay for. But turning this into a show that could air on network TV would strip it of a lot of what makes it fun. And I certainly don't want that. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, because I'm watching it all in a couple weeks, I'm paying for one month, I'm paying for total commercial free, I don't want any commercials, but even if you do get it with limited commercials, they can decide when the commercials are, they don't have to be in the normal commercial break periods, which, you know, that was something I know, you know, Ron Moore always talked about, he struggled with with Battlestar, was having to create the commercial breaks not exactly where they, where they wanted to, necessarily, um, Mm -hmm. Uh, really random question. Why do the why is the saucer spin on the Discovery? Yeah, because it's cool looking. Just because it looks fucking cool. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, they have artificial gravity and all that shit, so mm-hmm. there's no reason to do it other than that it's cool looking. Well, I guess my final thought is just since uh, 2000 uh, of new shows. Um, for me in the sci-fi area, it's, you know, it's clearly been Firefly, Battlestar, and SGU at the top, and this is, looks like it's kind of, it's going to reach that for me, I think. Yeah. Um, if this keeps up, I, I don't know, the Expanse definitely, other than that six episode arc, definitely was not, um, nothing yeah. else on sci-fi. Um, am I missing any? Um, for straight science fiction, nothing that I can really think of. I mean, I, I think this show in my personal preference, probably it's definitely better than enterprise. And I think it's better than Voyager. Um, so I'd probably put it fourth and maybe even personally third, just cause I have only seen little bits and pieces of the, uh, original series. So I don't have enough of a connection to it personally to really be able to rank it higher than that so yeah, for me I, if, uh, for I, me I, it's third I, I'm, I'm not even trying to rank it i, I was yeah. actually going to say this at the outset of the show which is that i i can't rank star trek the next generation i can only rank it based on how much i loved it at the time not like sure. how great it is or holds up now you know like 
So, Although I still think it holds up quite well. I've seen a fair number of episodes recently, and most of them are still very good. Sure, sure. But I mean, if we just again just do the Star Wars comparison, you know, people are constantly trying to make lists, and I'm like, okay, obviously everything that's not the prequels is better than the prequels. That's fine. But in terms of comparing the right. new movies to the originals, like. Are the new movies I mean, better? Like, I can't yeah. even compare them. It's like com- two completely different watching experiences. So I've just stopped trying. In that, in I think that it's sense. all yeah. right. It's all all of that is personal preference. Um, well, right, and that's and that's sort of what me and some of my fellow Star Wars podcasters have been encouraging people is like the list you make doesn't have to be some like obje- objective filmic list like. If you really like Revenge of the Sith, that's great. Awesome. You know, like... Yeah, glad you like it. Don't need to submit that to the Film Institute, you know? Like, just put that (laughs) at the top of your list because that's the one you like to watch, right? I mean, I don't think anything will top... And Star Trek will top what the experience of watching Next Generation as, like, a 10-year-old was like, right? Like, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's all personal preference stuff and whatever you like is what you like and if other people think differently well then they got a right to think differently and maybe you don't need to come up with giant petitions to ask people Mm -hmm. to you know do something the way you want it done Cool, man. Well, much appreciated, and um, uh, glad you hit me to the show. I still think there is something missing. There's a little secret sauce missing, but we've got three more episodes this season, and it is just the first season. And I am fully willing at this point to give this show two or three seasons to hit full stride at this point, because... I thought f- this was going to be a complete failure. I thought Star Trek was I did dead. Too. I thought the online er- owl access was crap. The uh, the lack of success in the f- of the mo- of the most recent movie, everything just seemed to indicate you know Star Wars was like you know rocketing off again. Um, you know, it, it, it seemed like sci-fi kept making more and more shows like the expanse and defiance and stuff like that. Like it just seemed like it would never happen. And so far I agree. It does feel like star Trek. They might have to pull a rogue one at some point and just kill everyone and destroy everything. But that's, if that's what it takes, if we get a good show in the meantime, then, then why not? Right. Absolutely. I mean, uh, to quote American psycho, I guess I just had to kill a whole lot of people. <laughs> All right, folks. Thank you for checking in. We will certainly be letting you know. Um, I guess, let's see, the, the next episode this Sunday, and then there's two more after that. So maybe three yep. weeks from the time, hopefully you guys are listening to this. Um, we will uh, do at least a short wrap-up of the season, maybe longer, depending on how awesome the last few episodes are. But I know I am very excited, and this will be the first time I watch an episode of Star Trek Live since probably 1999, Matt. I think. Because I didn't really watch Voyager. When did Voyager start? Uh, Voyager started right around the start of the... 21st century i want to say i was still 99 yeah something like that maybe a little earlier because i was definitely still in high school when it came out um so so i of course liked seeing jerry ryan in a skin tight suit and all of that she still looks great uh she does um 
But um, I, I also even back then recognized I was probably being pandered to a little bit with that character. Um, <laughs> I suppose, but she it was it was a compelling character. Yeah. Um, but oh no, no, because Deep Space Nine ran until I think two thousand two thousand one. So yeah, something so like been, that. Yeah. So it's been a while. So I'm excited. So thank you again, uh, Matt. Um, my internet appears to be about to go down, so this will be a good time to stop. Uh, thanks, listeners, uh, and uh, thanks for all the support you guys have shown for all the Star Wars podcasts. They've all done really, really well. So thank you, guys, and we'll be talking to you soon. We are out.